This is Chapter 33. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Chapter 33. Sixth-Century Political Economy. However, I made a dead set at him, and before the first third of the dinner was reached, I had him happy again. It was easy to do, in a country of ranks and castes. You see, in a country where they have ranks and castes, a man isn't ever a man, he is only part of a man. He can't ever get his full growth. You prove your superiority over him in station, or rank, or fortune, and that's the end of it. He knuckles down. You can't insult him after that. No, I don't mean quite that. Of course, you can insult him. I only mean it's difficult, and so, unless you've got a lot of useless time on your hands, it doesn't pay to try. I had the Smith's reverence now, because I was apparently immensely prosperous and rich. I could have had his adoration if I'd had some little gimcrack title of nobility, and not only his, but any commoners in the land, though he were the mightiest production of all the ages, in intellect, worth, and character, and I bankrupt in all three. This was to remain so as long as England should exist in the earth. With the spirit of prophecy upon me, I could look into the future and see her erect statues and monuments to her unspeakable Georges, and other royal and noble clothes-horses, and leave unhonored the creators of this world, after God Gutenberg, Watt, Arkwright, Whitney, Morse, Stevenson, Bell. The king got his cargo aboard, and then, the talk not turning upon battle, conquest, or iron-clad duel, he dulled down to drowsiness and went off to take a nap. Mrs. Marco cleared the table, placed the beer-keg handy, and went away to eat her dinner of leavings in humble privacy, and the rest of us soon drifted into matters near and dear to the hearts of our sort—business and wages, of course. At a first glance things appeared to be exceeding prosperous in this little tributary kingdom, whose lord was King Bagdemagus, as compared with the state of things in my own region. They had the protection system in full force here, whereas we were working along down toward free trade by easy stages, and were now about halfway. Before long Dowley and I were doing all the talking, the others hungrily listening. Dowley warmed to his work, snuffed an advantage in the air, and began to put questions which he considered pretty awkward ones for me, and they did have something of that look. "'In your country, brother, what is the wage of a master bailiff, master hind, carter, shepherd, swineherd?' Twenty-five milrays a day, that is to say, a quarter of a cent.' The smith's face beamed with joy. He said, "'With us they are allowed the double of it. And what may a mechanic get, a carpenter, dauber, mason, painter, a blacksmith, wheelwright, and the like? On the average, fifty milrays, half a cent a day.' "'Ho, ho! With us they are allowed a hundred. With us any good mechanic is allowed a cent a day. I count the tailor, but not the others. They are all allowed a cent a day, and in driving times they get more. Yes, up to a hundred and ten, and even fifteen milrays a day. I've paid a hundred and fifteen myself within the week. Hurrah for protection! Tis she all with free trade. 
and his face shone upon the company like a sunburst. But I didn't scare at all. I rigged up my pile-driver, and allowed myself fifteen minutes to drive him into the earth, drive him all in, drive him in till not even the curve of his skull should show above ground. Here's the way I started in on him. I asked, "'What do you pay a pound for salt?' "'A hundred mil-rays.' "'We pay forty. What do you pay for beef and mutton when you buy it?' That was a neat hit. It made the color come. "'It uh, varieth somewhat, uh, but not much. One may say seventy-five mil-rays the pound. We pay thirty-three. What do you pay for eggs? Fifty mil-rays the dozen. We pay twenty. What do you pay for beer? It costeth us eight and one-half mil-rays the pint. We get it for four. Twenty-five bottles for a cent. What do you pay for wheat?' at the rate of uh, nine hundred mil-rays the bushel. We pay four hundred. What do you pay for a man's tow-linen suit? Thirteen cents. We pay six. What do you pay for a stuff-gown for the wife of the laborer or the mechanic? We pay eight cents four mills. Well, observe the difference. You pay eight cents and four mills, we pay only four cents. I prepared now to sock it to him. I said, Look here, dear friend, what's become of your high wages you were bragging so about a few minutes ago? And I looked around on the company with placid satisfaction, for I had slipped up on him gradually, and tied him hand and foot, you see, without his ever noticing that he was being tied at all. What's become of those noble high wages of yours? I seem to have knocked the stuffing all out of them, it appears to me. But if you will believe me, he merely looked surprised, that is all. He didn't grasp the situation at all, didn't know he had walked into a trap, didn't discover that he was in a trap. I could have shot him for sheer vexation. With cloudy eye and a struggling intellect he fetched this out. Mary, I seem not to understand. It is proved that our wages be double thine. How then may it be that thou'st knocked therefrom the stuffing? and miscall not the wonderly word, this being the first time under grace and providence of God it hath been granted me to hear it. Well, I was stunned, partly with this unlooked-for stupidity on his part, and partly because his fellows so manifestly sided with him, and were of his mind, if you might call it mind. My position was simple enough, plain enough. How could it ever be simplified more? However, I must try." why look here brother dowley don't you see your wages are merely higher than ours in name not in fact hear him they are the double you have confessed it yourself yes yes i don't deny that at all but that's got nothing to do with it the amount of the wages in mere coins with meaningless names attached to them to know them by has got nothing to do with it the thing is how much can you buy with your wages that's the idea while it is true that with you a good mechanic is allowed about three dollars and a half a year and with us only about a dollar and seventy-five there you're confessing it again you're confessing it again confound it i've never denied it i tell you what i say is this with us half a dollar buys more than a dollar buys with you and therefore it stands to reason, and the commonest kind of common sense, that our wages are higher than yours. He looked dazed, and said despairingly, Verily I 
cannot make it out. You've just said ours are the higher, and with the same breath you take it back. Oh, great Scott, isn't it possible to get such a simple thing through your head? Now look here, let me illustrate. We pay four cents for a woman's stuff gown. You pay eight point four point zero, which is four mills more than double. What do you allow a laboring woman who works on a farm? Two mills a day. Very good. We allow but half as much. We pay her only a tenth of a cent a day, and again you're conf— Wait! Now you see, the thing is very simple. This time you'll understand it. For instance, it takes your woman forty-two days to earn her gown at two mills a day, seven weeks' worth. But ours earns hers in forty days, two days short of seven weeks. Your woman has a gown, and her whole seven weeks' wages are gone. Ours has a gown, and two days' wages left to buy something else with. There, now you understand it. He looked, well, he merely looked dubious, it's the most I can say. So did the others. I waited to let the thing work. Dowley spoke at last, and betrayed the fact that he actually hadn't gotten away from his rooted and grounded superstitions yet. He said with a trifle of hesitancy, "'But, uh, but, you cannot fail to grant that two mills a day is better than one.' Shucks! Well, of course, I hated to give it up, so I chanced another flyer. "'Let us suppose a case.' Suppose one of your journeymen goes out and buys the following articles. One pound of salt, one dozen eggs, one dozen pints of beer, one bushel of wheat, one tow-linen suit, five pounds of beef, five pounds of mutton. The lot will cost him thirty-two cents. It takes him thirty-two working days to earn the money, five weeks and two days. Let him come to us and work thirty-two days at half the wages. He can buy all those things for a shade under fourteen and a half cents. They will cost him a shade under twenty-nine days' work, and he will have about a half a week's wages over. Carry it through the year, he would save nearly a week's wages every two months. Your man, nothing. Thus, saving five or six weeks' wages in a year— your man not a cent. Now, I reckon you understand that high wages and low wages are phrases that don't mean anything in the world until you find out which of them will buy the most. It was a crusher. But, alas, it didn't crush. No, I had to give it up. What those people valued was high wages didn't seem to be a matter of any consequence to them whether the high wages would buy anything or not. They stood for protection, and swore by it, which was reasonable enough, because interested parties had gulled them into the notion that it was protection which had created their high wages. I proved to them that in a quarter of a century their wages had advanced but thirty per cent, while the cost of living had gone up one hundred and that with us, in a shorter time, wages had advanced forty per cent, while the cost of living had gone steadily down. But it didn't do any good. Nothing could unseat their strange beliefs. Well, I was smarting under a sense of defeat. Undeserved defeat, but what of that? 
That didn't soften the smart any. And to think of the circumstances. The first statesman of the age, the capablest man, the best-informed man in the entire world, the loftiest uncrowned head that had moved through the clouds of any political firmament for centuries, sitting here, apparently defeated in argument, by an ignorant country blacksmith. And I could see that those others were sorry for me, which made me blush till I could smell my whiskers scorching. Put yourself in my place. Feel as mean as I did, as ashamed as I felt. Wouldn't you have struck below the belt to get even? Yes, you would. It is simply human nature. Well, that is what I did. I am not trying to justify it. I am only saying that I was mad, and anybody would have done it. Well, when I make up my mind to hit a man, I don't plan out a love-tap. No, that isn't my way. As long as I am going to hit him at all, I am going to hit him a lifter. And I don't jump at him all of a sudden, and risk making a blundering halfway business of it. No, I get away off yonder to one side, and work up on him gradually, so that he never suspects that I'm going to hit him at all. And by and by, all in a flash, he's flat on his back, and he can't tell for the life of him how it all happened. That is the way I went for Brother Dowley. I started to talking lazy and comfortable, as if I was just talking to pass the time. And the oldest man in the world couldn't have taken the bearings of my starting-place and guessed where I was going to fetch up. Boys, there's a good many curious things about law, and custom, and usage, and all that sort of thing, when you come to look at it. Yes, and about the drift and progress of human opinion, and movement, too. There are written laws, they perish, but there are also unwritten laws, they are eternal. Take the unwritten law of wages. It says they've got to advance, little by little, straight through the centuries. And notice how it works. We know what wages are now, here and there and yonder. We strike an average and say that's the wages of today. We know what the wages were a hundred years ago, and what they were two hundred years ago. That's as far back as we can get, but it suffices to give us the law of progress, the measure and rate of the periodical augmentation. And so, without a document to help us, we can come pretty close to determining what the wages were three and four and five hundred years ago. Good, so far. Do we stop there? No. We stop looking backward. We face around and apply the law to the future. My friends, I can tell you what people's wages are going to be at any date in the future you want to know, for hundreds and hundreds of years. What, good man, what? Yes, in seven hundred years wages will have risen to six times what they are now, here in your region, and farmhands will be allowed three cents a day, and mechanics six. I wouldn't I might die now and live then, interrupted Smug, the wheelwright, with a fine avaricious glow in his eye. And that isn't all. They'll get their board besides, such as it is, it won't bloat them. Two hundred and fifty years later, pay attention now, a mechanic's wages will be—mind you, this is law, not guesswork—a mechanic's wages will then be twenty cents a day. There was a general gasp of awed astonishment. Dick and the Mason murmured with raised eyes and hands, more than three weeks' pay for one day's work. Riches! Of a truth, yes, riches! muttered Marco, his breath coming quick and short with excitement. 
wages will keep on rising little by little little by little as steadily as a tree grows and at the end of three hundred and forty years more there'll be at least one country where the mechanic's average wage will be two hundred cents a day it knocked them absolutely dumb not a man of them could get his breath for upwards of two minutes then the coal-burner said prayerfully might i but live to see it it is the income of an earl said smug an earl say ye said dowley ye could say more than that and speak no lie there's no earl in the realm of bagdemagus that hath an income like to that income of an earl <laughs> it's the income of an angel now then that is what is going to happen as regards wages in that remote day that man will earn with one week's work that bill of goods which it takes you upwards of fifty weeks to earn now some other pretty surprising things are going to happen too brother dowley who is it that determines every spring what the particular wage of each kind of mechanic laborer and servant shall be for that year sometimes the courts sometimes the town council but most of all the magistrate you may say in general terms it is the magistrate that fixes the wages doesn't ask any of those poor devils to help him fix their wages for them does he hmm that were an idea the master that's to pay him the money is the one that's rightly concerned in that matter you will notice yes but i thought the other man might have some little trifle at stake in it too and even his wife and children poor creatures the masters are these nobles rich men the prosperous generally these few who do no work determine what pay the vast hive shall have who do work you see they're a combine a trade union to coin a new phrase who band themselves together to force their lowly brother to take what they choose to give thirteen hundred years hence so says the unwritten law the combine will be the other way and then how these fine people's posterity will fume and fret and grit their teeth over the insolent tyranny of trade unions yes indeed the magistrate will tranquilly arrange the wages from now clear away down into the nineteenth century and then all of a sudden the wage earner will consider that a couple of thousand years or so is enough of this one-sided sort of thing and he will rise up and take a hand in fixing his wages himself ah uh, he will have a long and bitter account of wrong and humiliation to settle do you believe that he actually will help to fix his own wages yes indeed and he will be strong and able then brave times brave times of a truth sneered the prosperous smith oh and uh, there's another detail in that day a master may hire a man for only just one day or one week or one month at a time if he wants to what it's true moreover a magistrate won't be able to force a man to work for a master a whole year on a stretch whether the man wants to or not will there be no law or sense in that day both of them dowley in that day a man will be his own property not the property of magistrate and master and he can leave town whenever he wants to if the wages don't suit him and they can't put him in the pillory for it perdition catch such an age shouted dowley in strong indignation an age of dogs an age barren of reverence for superiors and respect for authority the pillory oh wait brother 
say no good word for that institution i think the pillory ought to be abolished a most strange idea why well i'll tell you why is a man ever put in the pillory for a capital crime no is it right to condemn a man to a slight punishment for a small offence and then kill him there was no answer i had scored my first point for the first time the smith wasn't up and ready the company noticed it good effect you don't answer brother you were about to glorify the pillory a while ago and shed some pity on a future age that isn't going to use it i think the pillory ought to be abolished what usually happens when a poor fellow is put in the pillory for some little offence that didn't amount to anything in the world the mob try to have some fun with him don't they yes they begin by clodding him and they laugh themselves to pieces to see him try to dodge one clod and get hit with another yes then they throw dead cats at him don't they yes well then suppose he has a few personal enemies in that mob and here and there a man or a woman with a secret grudge against him and suppose especially that he is unpopular in the community for his pride or his prosperity or one thing or another stones and bricks take the place of clods and cats presently don't they oh, there is no doubt of it as a rule he is crippled for life isn't he jaws broken teeth smashed out or legs mutilated gangrened presently cut off or an eye knocked out maybe both eyes it is true god knoweth it and if he is unpopular he can depend on dying right there in the stocks can't he he surely can one may not deny it i take it none of you are unpopular by reason of pride or insolence or conspicuous prosperity or any of those things that excite envy and malice among the base scum of a village you wouldn't think it much of a risk to take a chance in the stocks dowley winced visibly i judged he was hit but he didn't betray it by any spoken word as for the others they spoke out plainly and with strong feeling they said they had seen enough of the stocks to know what a man's chance in them was and they would never consent to enter them if they could compromise on a quick death by hanging well to change the subject for i think i've established my point that the stocks ought to be abolished i think some of our laws are pretty unfair for instance if i do a thing which ought to deliver me to the stocks and you know i did it and yet keep still and don't report me you will get the stocks if anybody informs on you ah but that would serve you but right said dowley for you must inform so saith the law the others coincided well all right let it go since you vote me down but there's one thing which certainly isn't fair the magistrate fixes a mechanic's wage at one cent a day for instance the law says that if any master shall venture even under utmost press of business to pay anything over that cent a day even for a single day he shall be both fined and pilloried for it and whoever knows he did it and doesn't inform they also shall be fined and pilloried now it seems to me unfair dowley and a deadly peril to all of us that because you thoughtlessly confessed a while ago that within a week you have paid a cent and fifteen mil oh i tell you it was a smasher you ought to have seen them to go to pieces the whole gang i had just slipped up on poor smiling and complacent dowley so nice and easy and softly that he never suspected anything was going to happen 
till the blow came crashing down and knocked him all to rags. A fine effect! In fact, as fine as any I ever produced, with so little time to work it up in. But I saw in a moment that I had overdone the thing a little. I was expecting to scare them, but I wasn't expecting to scare them to death. They were mighty near it, though. You see, they had been a whole lifetime learning to appreciate the pillory, and to have that thing staring them in the face, and every one of them distinctly at the mercy of me a stranger if I chose to go and report, well, it was awful, and they couldn't seem to recover from the shock. They couldn't seem to pull themselves together. Pale, shaky, dumb, pitiful, why, they weren't any better than so many dead men. It was very uncomfortable. Of course, I thought they would appeal to me to keep mum, and then we would shake hands and take a drink all round and laugh it off, and there an end. But no. You see, I was an unknown person, among a cruelly oppressed and suspicious people, a people always accustomed to having advantage taken of their helplessness, and never expecting just or kind treatment from any but their own families and very closest intimates. Appealed to me to be gentle, to be fair, to be generous? Of course they wanted to, but they couldn't dare. End of chapter 33